Hello, welcome to the National Working Waterfront podcast, the show where we chat about topics related to the working waterfront, an important driver of the blue economy and development along our coasts. I'm your host, Ashley Venice, a planning specialist with Texas Sea Grant. This show is a production of the National Working Waterfront Network and is brought to you by the American Shoreline Podcast Network with support from the Walton Family Foundation. This episode is the first in a series that will focus on sustainable and resilient fisheries. For the next handful of episodes, we are going to explore what sustainable fisheries are and what specifically makes a fishery sustainable. We will learn about the current state of the nation's working waterfronts and what it means for our fisheries. And we will meet several key players from across the fishing industry, from regulators and scientists to fishermen and activists. To begin, we wanted to get our bearings in this complicated and multifaceted industry. So my guest on today's episode is joining me from the state of Maine. Monique Combs is the Director of Community Programs with the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. She works closely with commercial fishermen to develop ways to protect, preserve, and revitalize Maine's working waterfronts. Monique, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ashley. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you on. And it's my understanding that you also married into the fisherman life, right? I absolutely did. Uh, my husband's a lobsterman. Um, he also fishes for tuna, and he'll be going to fish for scallops next week. But we got married in 2004. <laughs> <laughs> I had to think about that for a minute. <laughs> I had to think about it for a second, do some math. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. So kind of continue on. And as we always start this podcast, let's uh, give the audience a little more information about you. So can you tell us more about what you do in your position with the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association? Um, but also, yeah, more about your personal ties to the waterfront and the coast. So I'll start with the organization. Um, the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, we're an industry-driven nonprofit. So we work directly with fishermen um, to restore the fisheries in the Gulf of Maine and sustain Maine's fishing communities for future generations. The organization was founded by fishermen in 2006 out of Port Clyde, um, Port Clyde, Maine. It's a part of St. George. And, um, you know, since that time, the organization has just grown to work with fishermen up and down the coast of Maine. We even work with a couple of fishermen out of New Hampshire and Massachusetts. Um, on issues, again, pertaining to our mission. My role as the director of community programs, um, I get to work on on those issues um, to, to maintain our, our fishing communities for future generations. And I'm so lucky that I get to do that just because I am a fishing family. Um, so I, I get to work on issues that are important to me as a person, as a Mainer, as somebody who cares about the ocean, um, but as someone who also is directly impacted by some of the things that I get to work on. So, uh, like I mentioned, my husband's a fisherman. We also have two kids. My daughter is 17, my son is 12, and they both have their student lobster licenses. And uh, we get to live on Orr's Island. Uh, Orr's Island is actually connected by, uh, to the mainland by a bridge. It's part of Harpswell, Maine. And I'm, you know, living on the water, being able to work with fishermen, um, something, you know, in the seafood industry, something so important to the state of Maine is incredibly rewarding. 
And um, my programs in order to do those types of things, uh, usually right now is about the working waterfront, like what we're talking about here today, but also fishermen wellness. So mental health and well-being for Maine fishermen, which um, I'm sure we'll get to, but is also, you know, tied to the working waterfront. Um, so it's good stuff. Yeah, really good stuff. That's, and I didn't realize a, a student, um, was it license for lobstering that existed? That's really great as a way to, I know one of the issues is getting the uh, youth into, into commercial fishing, into fishing in general. And that's a great introduction for them. Yeah, it really is. And I'm just so incredibly uh, proud of them. And I, I know other kids with their main, uh, their lobster, student lobster licenses. And, you know, it really teaches kids hard work, time management, budgeting. My kids this past summer um, or the past few summers, you know, they'll get up at four or five o'clock in the morning to go Manhattan fishing with their dad, you know, get some bait. Then they hop on their own small lobster boat and they'll go haul their traps. And then they come home in the afternoon and they sell their lobsters to our neighbors. Um, there are people that have reached out to them on social media and they go to bed exhausted and sunburnt and covered in fish scales. And, you know, it's probably, it's not the average life or, or average summer for a teenager, but I, I'm just incredibly proud of their, their dedication and willingness to get up and, and work. Yeah, that was my thought exactly. I was like, wow, I don't know if I would have done that as a teenager. Um, but that's, I mean, that's got to instill such a sense of pride and, and like hard work. That's that's amazing. Um, so for the episode today, we wanted to, there's been so much um, chatter for a long time, but certainly recently about um, commercial fishing, sustainability and stuff like that. Um, in your own words, as best you can. What does it mean for a fishery to be sustainable and what does that look like um, on the East Coast in Maine? Yeah, that's actually, to me, such a hard question because sustainability means to do something the same way forever, in essence. And I think what we really want to be striving for and um you know, what fishermen are is, is resilient and adaptable. And whether it's regulation changes, environmental changes, changes to their business, being able to adapt and persevere and still be able to harvest healthy wild caught seafood is, I think, in essence, what what we all sort of call as being sustainable. And, and that includes management practices that help uh, make sure that there is um, seafood for the, the next generation as well. The Maine lobster industry especially is, um, in my opinion, and I, I think actually it's very true, is one of the most sustainable fisheries in the world because they have practices that were started by the fishermen, like V-notching lobster tails, you know, having a minimum and maximum sizes with lobstermen and Maine fishermen. And, and I think fishermen across the United States, there's such a, a passion and dedication both to their industry and the environment in which they work. And I think that, you know, sustainable is, is one word, but there's a lot of pieces that go, go into that, um, like resiliency and adaptability and passion. 
Um, yeah, and I'm I'm really happy you you said that because I think sustainable has has just be kind of come a meaningless word in a lot of ways, and so thinking about it in those those different terms is is helpful, or at least for me it is. And as far as um, you mentioned the lobster, of course, but what are um, some of the other types of species that um, fishermen in your region go out for or are able to catch? Sure. Um, so lobster, of course, like we just talked about, uh, scallops, the main scallop season just ended, um, menhaden or the, uh, more local nomenclature is, um, pogies is done in the summertime. Um, fishermen can also, there's, um, they can dive for scallops during certain times of the year. There's of course, um, intertidal species like soft shell clams, cohogs, um, even worms, um, although those wouldn't necessarily be something we're eating. <laughs> uh, let's see, then there's ground fish species like pollock and hake and cod. Um, halibut, during, especially during the summer months, is um, uh, very culturally relevant and, um, you know, good season for fishermen. And um, alewives, they fish for... Um, what else do we have? I, uh, bluefin tuna, of course. The season starts on June 1. Um, that's a great fishery up here in Maine. And I'm actually looking around my office for pictures of fish to, to remind me of the other species. But we have, um, you know, of course, Maine is synonymous with lobster. But, boy, we, we have a lot of other species that are pretty amazing. Um, that uh, Some that we can bring to shore and eat. And that, that's pretty great. Yeah, and I'm sure that's kind of a representation of just really East Coast in general, because, you know, as we know, fish don't usually stay in one place, they move around. So that's kind of like a generalized, you know, for the, the Northeast, would you say? Yeah, definitely. You know, we don't have, I mean, we do have squid, but it's not as big of a fishery as it is in, say, like Massachusetts or Rhode Island. So I think we all have our thing that we're kind of known for. And then there, there's other fisheries that are, you know, around in the Northeast, like you said, too. Mm-hmm. And um, it's my understanding as part of, and please correct me, um, as part of, um, you know, being um, sustainable and resilient, there's um, uh allotment sizes and, and catch sizes and stuff that people uh, can bring in. and But also, is there something as far as like certain species or do people generalize and catch all of them or do they stick to a certain species? Like how, what does that look like? Oh gosh. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> that's a lot. I, I will answer it to the, the best of my ability. Um, my skill set is, or my experience is not definitely in sort of policy and management, but um, the, the basic answer to your question is Fishermen require different licenses and permits to be able to fish on different species. And that includes, you know, different permits for state waters and federal waters. And then depending on the type of species they're catching, ground fish, for example, they have quota. So they can only, as you said, catch a certain allotment 
Um, and there's even size limits and, you know, there's quite a few regulations and restrictions on how and what can be caught when, but that's what makes the fisheries in the United States, um, you know, so sustainable to use that word again, um, is that there, there is monitoring that's happening. There is reporting that's happening. Fishermen have to use special gear depending on what they're fishing for. And so there's quite a bit of work in, you know, on, on, for fishermen, especially in, you know, trying to diversify their businesses to be able to catch different species um, during different times of year. It's not just a, here's your fisherman license, go out there and have fun. It's, you know, you have to get this license for this fishery. You have to, you know, declare trips during this time. And um, there's, there's quite a bit of work that goes into that, that management. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Cause um, I'm, I'm not a fisherman. I'm, I don't have much experience. I think most of us that eat seafood probably don't. And it feels like lately some of the narrative is that anyone with a boat can just stumble into the ocean and then catch as much as they want. So it's, I mean, that's part of why the U.S. is recognized for how we manage is because there is a lot that goes into it. And I know um, through NOAA and stuff, there's a lot of science that goes into, you know, size and what they can catch and what they can't and stuff like that. So there's really much more to it than what we see on the surface. Oh, absolutely. And just just to add on to that, too, because I think it's important to mention is that um, the costs that goes into some of these things, especially with licenses and permits, you know, if you visit Maine and you want to get your saltwater fishing license, I think it's $25, if not, you know, free or $6 or something like that. But when you're talking about licenses to be able to, you know, commercially fish for a species, you're talking upwards of 50,000, a hundred thousand, you know, it, even more than that, there's some permits that can be a million dollars. So this is, it's an incredibly um, high cost to invest in your business um, for, for fishing. Yeah. So, I mean, you really, I would assume, have to have a passion for, for doing this type of work. Passion, dedication, and a, a willingness to work incredibly hard. That's for sure. In all sorts of conditions. In it all seems sorts like. of conditions. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, attain, obtaining that that status of sustainability, not not easy by any means. Um, and you were talking about some of the, the entrance obstacles, but what are other um, obstacles that you're seeing, um, whether it be access or um, climate change or whatever that fishermen and fisherwomen are experiencing now? I think access is, is definitely um, a, a big one and we can get into that a little bit more. I think um, experience is also difficult um, and you know the costs of some of these things are, are very difficult. Um, so just for example, um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the USDA, has programs like the New Farmers and Ranchers programs, the Local Food Market and Promotion Program, and various similar programs that if you were a newer farmer, you could you know, potentially get um, put into contact with an older farmer who's looking to retire. You could get some funding to help purchase land. And I'm speaking very generally here about this. I know that the agriculture industry comes with its own own um, set of obstacles. 
But those types of programs don't exist um, at NOAA for fishermen. So a lot of the costs for entering into a fishery, buying a license, buying a boat, buying gear are out of pocket or, you know, via loans. Um, And so that makes it uh, very difficult. It's also, um, you know, speaking as a, a, a mom right now, for my kids to get into the lobster industry because their dad fishes, it's a little bit easier for them. But I do worry if they were to tell me, hey, I want to go ground fish fishing, you know, there's, I have a different kind of worry there because you have to go a little bit further offshore. And so I think that, you know, considering risk um, is different these days than maybe it was 20, 30 years ago. Um, And then, you know, cost of living by the water and access, like you said, Um, you know, even just being able to afford a boat um, and afford the opportunity to be able to get to that boat can be expensive. Um, So, you know, the the cumulative impact of these things is is really kind of taking a toll um, for the next generation being able to enter into the fisheries. Yeah, that's a that's a lot to think about. And and as far as access, I know and we've talked about it on this podcast before that um, there's kind of a bit of a fight on the waterfront um, between a lot of different industries and um, between tourism and stuff to get that access. And I mean, honestly, if um, if fishermen are, are priced out and they don't get that access to the waterfront, I'm is are there any other options? There really isn't, is there? No, there's not. Um, and so, the waterfront is so necessary for for fishermen for access. You know, as we're saying it in terms of like being able to either walk into the inner tidal to be able to harvest soft shell clams, hard shell clams, or a species like that. Um, or for a fisherman to be able to walk across a wharf, hop in their skiff and get to their mooring. Um, But there's also access around gear storage and being able to maintain gear and getting, you know, large items like that to and from the boat to land um, to be able to work on and then also store. Um, And so one of the things that we're doing at um, Main Coast Fishermen's Association to sort of start to, you know, better understand how to protect some of that access is to really, you know, I I don't want to say categorize, but to specify the different types of working waterfronts that exist for commercial fishing in states like Maine. Um, They're not all huge wharfs that have lots of seafood going across the docks. Um, some of the wharfs in a, in a report that I did a couple of years ago, um, we use the term discrete working waterfront to describe them. So they're very small docks or piers that are often used by one or two fishermen. Um, who owns that pier? The ownership is often ambiguous or it's simply um, a handshake agreement between a property owner and a fisherman. Um, it's usually used just for gear storage. Um, it's often in somewhat disrepair and, you know, with one good storm surge away from falling into the water. Those are pretty common along the coast of Maine in, in small communities. Um, they're important both for a fisherman's business as well as, 
you know, they're, they're signifiers um, on the, in the landscape that, you know, recognize the, the cultural significance of, of fishing in that community. And, and I worry that it's those types of wharfs or piers that are more at risk than some of the larger piers. And, you know, you might think, well, you know, that stinks if one or two fishermen, you know, lose that access, or if a couple of fishermen pass and that, that little wharf or pier, you know, goes back to the, you know, landowner who doesn't really care about fishing. But, you know, if we lose all of those piers, it puts even more pressure on the larger wharfs. Um, and it, you know, is, again, just one more thing that sort of changes um, in a coastal community that has the potential to just really alter the landscape. And, and that does have an effect on fishermen beyond just their business. There's a term, solastalgia. Solastalgia is um, a feeling of homesickness when you're at home. Um, it was termed, oh gosh, I think it was coined in like 2008. And you know, pertains mostly to like impacts from climate change. So say after Hurricane Katrina, residents felt, you know, solastalgia because they looked around and their homes were gone and their communities looked a little bit different. That's happening in places like the coast of Maine where, you know, there's a change in population. There was quite a bit of, um, this is a new term I learned, pandemic migration. A lot of our summer residents became year-round residents. Um, there's a lot of people that bought homes sight unseen. And, you know, so there's a lot of development, a lot of increasing um, tourism. And that's not to say that those things are negative, but, you know, if they are having an impact, if they are making the cost of being on the water higher for fishing families, if they are, you know, literally altering the landscape and what it looks like in a fishing community, it impacts a fisherman's business, but it also can create a sense of solastalgia, which is pretty weighing on someone's mental health. Yeah, definitely. And and that's, I'm sure many of us have felt this, um, but to put a word to it, that's really helpful. And I know here in Texas, we saw a lot of that uh, through the pandemic, just um I know tourism suffered in a lot of places, but, you know, people were able to drive down here and come to the beach. And we saw just a huge influx and a lot of um, a lot of confrontation on the waterfront um, is quite a feeling. But I know Maine is, you know, the fishing community, some of them have been there for, you know, generations. And that's a huge thing. But they're they're small. And a lot of I think what people don't realize is the commercial fishing industry is in a lot of ways made up of a patchwork of these small communities kind of pulling together. As far as like uh, like the pandemic, um, I'm sure there has to have been some type of um, change in strategies um, for getting maybe uh, fish to market or getting into their customers. So during the pandemic, um, it was a really... I mean, interesting time everywhere. That's such a, a silly comment. But, you know, Maine, we saw um, quite a bit of activity. So, of course, at the, the start of the pandemic, we were really concerned about seafood going to market, um, what the prices were going to do, if fishermen were going to be able to continue to fish. And, um, you know, going back to them being a, a resilient and adaptable bunch, um, what they did was pivot, well, you know, they they pivoted their businesses um, to be able to sell direct to market. Um, the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association supported a couple of fishermen who started a Facebook group that was called, you know, 
fish right from fishermen or, or something like that. And, you know, a lot of them were able to sell their lobsters to their neighbors and friends and community members and at farmers markets. Um, it was a little bit difficult for other types of species because um, being able to, to sell fish um, requires other types of permits. Lobstermen um, are one of the only fishermen in the state of Maine that can sell their product directly to consumer. And so, you know, they took, um, you know, advantage of that during the pandemic and were able to sell quite a bit of their product. And my, that's what my kids do. You know, they put it on social media and most of the time they were able to, to sell everything. It wasn't a sustainable model because most fishermen are not interested in marketing their product. They're not interested in, you know, going to farmer's markets and, and sitting there and selling their lobsters. Um, but it was a good model that was temporary that helped them support their businesses. Um, and, it, and it worked really well for them. It's not as, um, you know, as the pandemic winds down, maybe, I guess, um, it, it's not as prevalent as it was, um, but there is still a demand from consumers to be able to find and purchase local seafood because the pandemic was sort of an opportunity for, for fishermen to be, you know, more um, prevalent in the food system here in Maine. And so it, it's been great to see our our seafood community kind of thrive here. And then the other thing that um, the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association was able to do is um, my colleagues developed a program called Fishermen Feeding Mainers. And um, what we did with some, you know, of the COVID money that was available is buy uh, fish, ground fish species like hake and pollock directly from fishermen. Um, we worked with local processors for them to cut the fish. And then the fish was donated to the organizations like the Good Shepherd Food Bank, local food pantries, and in the school system. And that program, Fishermen Feeding Mainers, has only grown since the pandemic. Um, and we're really hoping to, you know, ha have it be sustainable and something that we can offer, you know, for a long time. That, yeah. That was great. Thank yeah, thank you, Monique. And and obviously you can't speak for for all of it. And there's so many complicated factors that are working together um, to to create these obstacles for fishermen. But I I appreciate that. And it's great to hear that there's so many efforts. I know there is a lot of more direct to marketing efforts around the country um, to try and get get people um, seafood and try and keep businesses thriving. And I've heard that, you know, maybe different alternative um, like aquaculture or even, you know, uh, kelp and seaweed like farming. And there's these different strategies that have been explored to kind of keep thriving and keep um, being able to, you know, feed your family, uh, fishermen feed their family and stuff like that. There's a lot to it. And kind of thinking about the future and stuff, like as a consumer, if I'm really interested in, in supporting this industry and stuff, like, are there any guides or anywhere I can go to find out like how I shop better or how I even, how I um, better identify, you know, where my seafood is coming from? Sure. I mean, I think that seafood ha is, has been a very complicated topic um, in the United States for a long time. Um, and I think the, the easiest solution for consumers to, to know is 
that they should buy American seafood. I don't think it needs to be more complicated than that, really and truly. I mean, of course, I want people to only buy Maine seafood ever. <laughs> but I think, you know, in the U.S., our, our, our fisheries, it's not just Maine. Our fisheries are, are highly regulated and, and sustainable. And going to your, uh, you know, local grocery store, if you're on the coast, um, you can likely find some local seafood. Um, finding, you know, fishmongers if you're near the coast, looking at websites like localcatch.org. There's a model, the CSF, Community Supported Fisheries, which is based on the agriculture model of CSAs, Community Supported Agriculture. And, you know, during the pandemic, also websites exploded. Shipping is available, you know, it's, it's 2022. And so you can have local seafood from places like Maine shipped right to your door. Um, and it's just a, a Google search away. And, and I think that that's really a great way for people to support, you know, American fishermen and local fishermen and be able to, to access some really good, healthy, wild caught protein. Perfect. And I mean, do you know of, um, any, and it's okay if you don't just for my own curiosity, do you know of any, like, um, you know, big box stores or grocery stores and stuff that, that try to, um, capture more local stuff, like their fish counters and stuff. Cause I know here in Texas, the, um, our, our grocery store, AGB, I think they, they really try to target the, the local like shrimp industry here and stuff. And, and do you know of anything like that? Um, I mean, I, I know like Hannaford here in Maine um, tries to offer local seafood options. And so I would imagine, you know, whatever your larger grocer is in your area, you know, maybe the Publix down south and, and things like that. It's just a matter of sort of asking or, or doing a couple internet searches and, and being able to to get some of that information. Mm-hmm. And um, are you aware of any like type of policies or management strategies that are, you know, coming up or happening right now to better support this industry or even just the working waterfront in general? I know there's been quite a bit of talks um, in Congress about working waterfront bills to help preserve them um, for the future. And I think that, you know, when, when we get a little bit more time and space in this country to be able to focus on those things, I hope they get highlighted a little bit more. But, you know, it's definitely a topic of conversation. Um, the working waterfront, like especially um, amongst policymakers and regulators and even politicians to, to try to understand how best to to protect our coasts. You know, and, and I say coasts because working waterfront it's been my experience that that sort of means different things to different people. You know, somebody that's in, you know, um, yachting, they're going to think about the working waterfront a little bit differently than I do. You know, I think about the working waterfront when, when I'm talking about it, I mean infrastructure on the waterfront specific for commercial fishing activity. If I talk to a fisherman on the working waterfront, they could potentially think of working waterfront in the same way someone might think of a food system. So the working waterfront means, you know, everything from the boat to the fishing activity to the infrastructure necessary to get 
product to the consumer, which would include trucking and bait and ice and fuel, um, you know, and then there's boatyards and marinas. You know, they're all, in essence, part of the working waterfront and incredibly important. And I, th I think that that's the piece, you know, that is important for our organization right now is to really define and clarify and specify you know, the parts of the working waterfront that are that are necessary for a fisherman's business so that we can really start to think about solutions for conservation and preservation um, and protection. Because, you know, if we're talking very generally, it's, it's very hard to identify solutions. And, you know, I, I think the other thing that's important about sort of clarifying some of that is you know, education and outreach um, to mitigate coastal conflict. So again, thinking about that, that quote unquote pandemic migration that happened during, you know, the past couple of years in places like Maine, you know, if you're moving to the coast and you've never lived on the water before, or you've never lived next to a fishing wharf before, you might be surprised at you know, bright lights or the smell of bait or, you know, a forklift moving around a wharf all day long or, you know, opening up your curtains and seeing clam harvesters in the inner tidal. It's unimaginable to me, but some people don't like that. And, you know, that's just based on, on their experiences, but we need to be able to communicate and do proper outreach and education so that when people move to coastal communities, like where I live in Harpswell, there's an understanding of, you know, how that community got to be where it is. And, and part of that is the, the commercial fishing families that live there. And so there needs to be some cooperation and mindfulness. And, and that only happens with, you know, with good communication. Yeah. And, and I think you and I had talked about that. Um, you, the, um, your your group and um, who your uh, the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association is working to do different types of outreach and education because there are so many newcomers to the coast that that don't understand that lifestyle. Yeah, we're doing um, uh, in Harpswell, of course, because that's where I live. Um, we're doing a, a working waterfront panel series with um, other organizations in the community. So the Harpswell Heritage Land Trust. Um, the Harpswell Anchor, which is our local newspaper, the Holbrooks Foundation, um, one of the local libraries, the Cundies Harbor Library. Um, we're all working together to do this, this series where we cover topics that are important to fishing communities. So this past uh, fall, we did um, you know, fishing family generations, and we did fishing through the seasons to just talk about the different types of activity you see on the waterfront, depending on the time of year. And then this coming spring, we have two topics. Um, one is going to be about access. So kind of like what we've been talking about, what access means for, for fishermen and that that can mean access to the water, but also access to permits, access to, to funding for their business, um, access to markets. And then the other topic is etiquette. And, you know, while our communities have gotten busier, so has the waterfront. So we would just want to do some outreach about, 
you know, slowing down, being mindful of working vessels, you know, knowing the rules of the water. Um, and so it, I, it's uh, actually quite a bit of fun because for the most part, people are so receptive to hearing this information and getting the opportunity to talk with fishermen about, um, you know, the activity on the water. A friend of mine sent me a text the other day. He said he was in the grocery store and a woman came up to him and, you know, said it was so good to see him. And she was asking about his business. And he said he finally had to ask, you know, like, I'm, I'm so sorry, who are you? And she said that she had heard him speak in one of our working waterfront panels. And she was just so excited about things. And it made him feel so good because instead of that idea that like, oh, this new neighbor, you know, hates my fishing business, he felt like a real connection you know, enough so that she felt like she could just go over in the grocery store and say hello to him. But, you know, we're slow but steady. I, I hope we see some really good outcomes like that because of this, this panel. Yeah, that's that's amazing. That's so good to hear. And um, and here on the podcast, part of, you know, why we wanted to to start this was to to highlight that, you know, the waterfront is so diverse and there's all these different aspects to it. But um, really super appreciate you joining me today to sit down and talk about this. Um, it was very enlightening and enlightening and thoughtful. And I was just, you know, as, you know, as a, someone who's working in this industry and then, you know, have personal ties and you have children coming up and stuff, is there anything else that you kind of wanted to impart on the audience or us as far as, you know, commercial fishing or just the future? Oh, I don't have any profound wisdom or anything other than, other than you know, I, I hope everybody eats, you know, American seafood, you know, especially seeking out Maine. I can say that, you know, selfishly a little bit. Um, and then I would also say, you know, thinking about um, fishermen as, as, as experts with diverse experience and knowledge of both um, the ocean and the species that live there. And um, also considering how our own impacts on land affect the water. Um, I think that, you know, sometimes we forget that just because we're not on the coast, um, our, our, well, I mean, I am on the coast, but, you know, that sometimes, you know, everything ends up back in the ocean. So just being mindful of, of our own actions on, on land and how they affect the water is incredibly important. Well said. Yeah. Everything runs to the ocean, even if it doesn't feel like it. Um, but yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Monique. It was great talking with you. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of this episode of the National Working Waterfronts podcast. To learn more about the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association and the great work that they are doing in the state of Maine, visit maincoastfishermen.org. As always, you can learn more about the National Working Waterfront Network by going to our website at nationalworkingwaterfronts.com. And I'm very excited to announce that the National Working Waterfront Network is hosting our conference this summer in Boston. The network is partnering with the Urban Harbors Institute to bring together people from across North America to showcase initiatives that protect and promote the working waterfront. The conference will take place from July 19th to the 21st at UMass Boston's Oceanfront Campus. Also, if you want to fill your life with even more National Working Waterfront Network content, we have a webinar series. Our past episodes can be found on our website. There is one coming up on May 12th at 1 p.m. Central Time, 
and we'll focus on resilience, ecology, and access at the water's edge. We will have a special guest from the Waterfront Alliance in New York talking about their Waterfront Edge Design Guidelines, a national rating system for resilient, ecologically sound, and accessible projects that touch the water's edge. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and I look forward to continuing this discussion in future episodes. Keep an eye out for the rest of the series on the American Shoreline Podcast Network website. And be sure to subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network to get this and all the other great shows available for free wherever you get your pods. Thank you.